I hope we can present you in the uh, in the last session something that goes a bit beyond the uh, uh, relatively defensive side of uh, of industrial policy and uh, and questions on how to uh, how to protect ourselves to uh, to an area that is more forward-looking and uh, and hopefully more visionary about where Europe's strengths in the uh, in the future can potentially lie. Um, so, um, what we. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Maybe first as a short announcement. Uh, unfortunately, there is a, is a labor strike today at the, at the airport, so uh, Mr. Meyer was not able to uh, to make it. Uh, I, uh, everybody hopes that it's going to be cleared by 2 p.m. or so today, but uh, let's. Uh, so if you have a flight, you might want to, to check. Um, uh, besides that, I'm very happy to, uh, to have uh, still two uh, excellent speakers here, um, and I would like to, uh, to use the, the extra time to, uh, to give you a very short sneak uh, preview of, of some research we have been doing on the issue of digitalization and sustainability, and uh, then I'll hand it over to the, uh, to the panelists, and I hope we can have an interesting discussion. Can you put up the, uh, the few slides, please? Okay. So... When you think about the issue about uh, sustainability and uh, and digital, uh, a lot of things can come to mind. The first area that you that you might think about is the the challenges uh, challenges that uh, that might arise from um, uh, from digitalization in terms of sustainability. We expect a significantly increasing energy demand from uh, from. Um, uh, from digital technology, so up to uh, seven percent of the uh, of the total energy demand might go to data centers, smartphones, uh, all sorts of uh, of e-technology. So that is definitely an area that we uh, that we need to uh, to look into and and be uh, aware of. The second area is uh, is material use. Also here, because of the uh, higher innovation cycles that we see in the um, uh, in digital technology, so just think about how much more often you change your telephone now than uh, than 30 years ago. Um, so there is an issue of e-waste uh, that are quite complex uh, materials. Uh, so another area to be to be looked into. On the other hand. There are also many ways in which digital technology can help us to, uh, to reduce our environmental footprint on all areas, um, because digital technology is set to make our life more efficient, and that also means more energy and more material efficient. Starting from the primary sector, like digital agriculture, up until uh, recycling, sorting, so the end use of the, of the products, digital technology can help us a lot to reduce the environmental footprint. Now, I want to take a step back and, uh, and try, to, um, uh, try to indicate what we think Europe can do in the future and what Europe might be potentially particularly good at. So there's a couple of production factors in an economy, and uh, you might have a bit of a wider interpretation than the classic macroeconomists that uh, take land, um, capital, and labor. Um, in terms of uh, both land and energy, uh, the European Union is not particularly well endowed uh, compared to, uh, to its competitors, so more land in the US, uh, more energy production per capita in the US. Um, in terms of, um, of labor, cost, uh, labor costs in the European Union are, uh, are significantly higher than, for example, in, uh, in China. And uh, in terms of materials, uh, again, the European Union needs to import a lot of those materials to produce its goods. Two things where the European Union is still on, um, 
um, comparatively good at is uh, in terms of innovation and knowledge and, uh, uh, and, uh, and data and in terms of capital stock. So if one thinks about the future for Europe, you would think about kind of using those production factors that are particularly, uh, that we are particularly well endowed with. Now, you can use different combinations of those production factors to, uh, to achieve your economic goals of providing services and goods. And just one example of, uh, uh, of one technology which might allow you to use very different production factors. If you do recycling, you can do it in very different ways. You can essentially try to, to use a lot of energy to destroy the material through pyrolysis back to its basic materials and then use the material. So you can recover a lot of material, but it's very energy intensive. You can try try to, uh, to do thermal recovery, so you essentially burn the stuff and then you generate uh, energy or electricity from that. You can also try to put a lot of people in work to, uh, to sort the stuff in order to be able to, to better recycle it later. Or you can try to, uh, to be very smart about how you do that and use new recycling technologies based on AI, based on big data approaches that help you to better sort and then better make use of these things that are less energy and resource intensive. So what we are arguing is that Europe's comparative advantage might often lie in the, in the more capital and knowledge intensive solutions. And, um, and then what we, uh, what we did here at Bruegel is we tried to, to look for, uh, for a lot of technologies where we think uh, um, in the future uh, there might be increasing demand for us. So here in the example of energy management, which countries might be particularly well suited in, uh, in developing this technology. And for example, here in the example of energy management, we think that many countries can still increase significantly their um, um, uh, their specialization into, uh, into that technology, in particularly also uh, European uh, countries. So two questions for, uh, for, the, uh, for the panel today. The first question, and I will start with that one, is where could be the opportunities for European industry to use digital technology to reduce environmental footprint? So what is maybe one, two, three examples where you think uh, Europe can play out its full force to, um, to reduce the environmental footprint? And I would like to, to start with uh, Valentino Rossi from uh, NL. I'm very happy that, uh, that he's here. He's a representative in Brussels. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm the, the head of the Brussels office of NL. NL is a multinational utility, it's one of the leaders of the energy transition. We have embraced what we call the energy transition, which is the complete transformation of, of the energy matrix, how we produce energy, how we uh, use energy uh, in, in, in our economies. Uh, I would say more than 10 years ago, and we're now one of the leaders. I will give you just a couple of numbers, and then I will finish these this advertisements for, for an end. Uh, we are today uh, one of the largest players in renewable industries in the world, private players, if you take out, of course, the, uh, the Chinese state-owned um, players, and we are one of the fastest growing in the world in this space. We are installing about four, um, four gigawatts, that is 4,000 megawatts of new renewable capacity every year, which corresponds to about an investment of 4 billion euros per year just in renewables. And then we're also investing in other compartments of the energy systems to enable this, this transition. So this is pretty much what, we, you know, what I will, uh, we're doing, what I will talk about. So a couple of uh, examples, or maybe more than two examples about how <coughs> digitalization can 
support and facilitate the energy and specifically the, the power industry in becoming sustainable. So I will try to be quite pedagogic and, and, and understandable, but of course, if I'm too technical, just stop me and I will try to be, to be easier. So I'll try to make examples which are very understandable from the, let's say, us as consumers, okay, because I think this was most interesting for us. So the first one would be the digitalization of the networks. So I'll try to explain this. So the electricity systems are quite complex systems. You imagine that they are made of uh, power plants, uh, uh, transmission networks, distribution networks, and, and appliances, and let's say uh, workload at the end of systems. But in principles, uh, they are designed on a very simple uh, assumption that the energy flows from a centralized power plant to a distributed consumption, uh, let's say, landscape. So they used to, the energy used to flow in the past from coal plants, nuclear plants, uh, uh, whatever type of technology plants you might, you might imagine in the past, to our homes, our industries, uh, or lights in the, in the streets. So this model is not any longer uh, usable or is not supporting the energy transition in that the energy transition, one of the pillars of the energy transition is the uh, complete substitution or almost complete substitution of the energy generation fit with renewables, which are intrinsically much more distributed. So we're going to have many more plants distributed, uh, smaller in size, um, which are running at different times of the, of the day depending on what the resources are, wind, the water, the sun. So it's a completely different production pattern. Why do we need digitalization to capture these benefits arising from the renewables? Because we need to, in a way, subvert the principles upon which the network is, is working. So energy will no longer be flowing from a centralized plant to the, uh, let's say, our houses or our industries, but on the contrary, before in many directions on the grid, so from one plant to a house nearby, from a power plant in, I don't know, in southern Italy to a, um, uh, let's say, another state which needs energy in that moment of the day. So the system cannot cope with this reality if it's not being digitalized. Today or in the past, the systems, the electricity system were quite easy. Imagine, uh, let's say, I'm simplifying this, of course, to the extreme. Imagine a, a bundle of wires and some transformers. This is basically, um, of course, oversimplifying it. If we're not going to digitalize to install massively digital technology, it's not possible to install all the renewables that we need. So that is one very, I hope it's very understandable example. I'll make another two, uh, which are more, I'd say, fancy. Um, again, uh, typically the energy system needs to be balanced, meaning that in any given moment, the load and the uh, production capacity needs to be at the same level to maintain the equilibrium. So now you have lights switched on in this room, and there are, of course, plants around, uh, let's say, Belgium and, and Europe producing exactly the same energy which is being used in this moment, okay? Uh, if we install many renewables uh, or, uh, around, around Europe and around the world, we'll need to cope with the variability of the, uh, of the uh, energy availability. That is, sun is shining now, maybe it's not shining in, in 10 minutes. Wind is blowing now, it's not maybe blowing you know, tonight, etc. So we need to cope with an unpredictable or less predictable amount of energy in each moment. So we need to find ways to keep balancing the, the, the energy, the, let's say, the availability of the energy and the amount of energy in, in real time. One of the ideas, there are many ideas for doing so, and typically these ideas were adapt 
production to the, to the uh, instantaneous uh, demand. There are many ideas which could be deployed thanks to digitalization. For example, one is what is called demand, re demand response. So basically, if the, um, the demand is being digitalized, meaning that there are digital-enabled uh, appliances, digital-enabled uh, industries, uh, we might think of reducing or increasing demand in certain moments, subject to certain conditions, because they will match the uh, available energy at that moment. So if there is a sudden decrease of, uh, let's say, wind in an area, we could imagine that we are going to disconnect under certain conditions the appliance in our houses or a bigger I don't know, uh, steel mill because we can do so and that will balance instantaneously the, um, the, the energy system. So again, I'm oversimplifying here, but this is the basic principle. And this will be allowed by digital technology. <coughs> if I may, a third one, which is still uh, more and more fancy, uh, and then I will, uh, I will uh, let the floor to, to, to you and uh, uh, the other panelists, uh, this is Megan. Uh, the, um, the idea being that uh, we are going, one of the pillars of the energy transition is electric mobility. So uh, we, as an ad, but I, I think you know, it's now mainstream, we see a deep penetration of uh, electric vehicles, at least for light vehicles in, in, on our streets, uh, which, is, which is interesting per se. But there is another interesting aspect that we can see in electric vehicles. The fact that electric vehicles have batteries on board, and those batteries could be a piece of the storage need on the system. Because, of course, due to the variability I was discussing before of renewables, we need also ways to storage, to store energy through batteries. The batteries in the vehicles could be a piece of the equation. So through a digitalized system, we could also use the batteries in the cars, that is, your electric car, my electric car parked in the, in the office's parking space, to balance the system. And of course, also for this, which is quite a sophisticated uh, approach, we will need a digitalized uh, energy system. Thanks a lot, Valentino. Um, I think we'll have some questions, or I'll have some questions on that. Um, uh, Megan? Um. Uh, well, that's more or less what I was going to say as well. But <laughs> let me try to put it in a slightly uh, different way. First, uh, of course, I was going to talk about smart metering, which is uh, one of the things you were talking about. Uh, and this is important for integrating renewables, of course, and making sure demand response can work. One other thing that I think is important for smart metering is, of course, related to the decentralization of the generation of renewables. Many industries are now generating their own renewables. And an important aspect in this sense, and the reason why digital uh, technologies and smart meters are important is because consumers can now, under our new legislation, uh, just adopted under the 2030 uh, package, uh, can feed their excess production into the grid itself and sell it back to the grid. So you have to have a digital technology in order to do that. So that's one for smart metering. I agree entirely. On smart grids, I was also going to talk about this better um, integration of renewables, of course, more efficient interconnections. Uh, this improves energy efficiency. It's the same for smart metering, of course, because the better you use energy, the less you use, which means you reduce costs. Uh, those of you who are energy experts know that the Europe is about 55% dependent on imports for the time being, 90% in oil, 70% in gas. And so the more we can generate ourselves domestically and exchange with each other, the better. And this is also important in the context of smart grids because we have a huge interconnection uh, 
initiative to try to increase interconnection between member states to at least 15%. Uh, we have uh, Connecting Europe facility for energy, trans-European networks, energy, to try to encourage member states to better use uh, the energy that they generate and import. And so this also offsets variability, and by using smart grids, we can better manage them. And we have a number of smart grids that are um, supported by the European um, Union funding provisions. And that also, of course, by increasing energy efficiency, reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So that's both true for smart grids and for smart metering. And smart charging, of course, I was also going to mention, this again relates to more efficiencies, better use of the resources we have, uh, including electric vehicles and other uh, potential uh, distributed and decentralized storage uh, provisions, whatever they may be. So you might have, uh, well, I shouldn't name names. You might have a large industrial organization that's generating its own energy from, let's say, rooftop uh, solar panels, and it's also storing some of that in batteries. This could be used when connected to the grid to um, either feedback in or as adjusted uh, manage the system better. And so that's a smart charging aspect. You talked about e-vehicles, of course. And I think the potential there for blockchain use is also quite high. Um, then another area where I think digital technologies, artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, is, has huge potential is in the management of greenhouse gas emissions. So in pipeline, uh, remote sensing, uh, and, and all these sensors that are detecting where uh, emissions are coming from, what they're doing. So this will help us, A, to identify where they're coming from, B, improve the way in which those pipelines and other sources of energy are managing, and of course then reduce the consumption, reduce the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, that makes uh, also more efficient flows. I talked about the interconnections between member states, and those interconnections go also beyond European borders. So to the energy community, countries, to what is sometimes called Southern Mediterranean, uh, et cetera. And we have uh, Norway, of course, is uh, one of our biggest uh, partners. Who knows? The UK may soon be also <laughs> a new third country. I hope not, but uh, uh, who knows? We'll see at the end of today what's, what's going to happen. Um, well, <laughs> let's see. Yeah, or maybe not. <laughs> Every day it's something new. Um, then another element, of course, here and where digital technology is important, of course, is in the management of critical infrastructure. Uh, with the increase of digitalization of these critical infrastructures uh, and increased interconnectivity, it's really important to make sure that cybersecurity is addressed. And this is something that we are doing uh, in uh, the European Union, uh, partly through the introduction of something called network codes. I won't go into the details. He knows all about it. Uh, we have introduced a package of uh, new market design provisions for the electricity sector in what's called the Clean Energy for All Europeans package, and in the Electricity Directive, the Electricity Regulation, and Risk Preparedness in particular, but also in the regulator. There's a new uh, 
legislative act for the regulator. These all introduce many of these aspects that I was talking about, demand response, uh, better ability to feed in, ability for consumers to have a better role in what they're doing, and feedback into the system. So that's from the regulatory point of view. I wanted to emphasize that. And of course, in that Clean Energy for All Europeans package, there's um, there are new targets for increased renewables, increased energy efficiency, and then a governance regulation which requires the member states to provide 10-year national plans on integrated climate and energy um, activities, what they're going to do over the next 10 years. And so the digital element will be very important there. One other thing that I think is important in the energy field uh, is sector coupling. And in order to do that properly, and he can explain because I, I don't want to take all the time, uh, but I think in the context of sector, sector coupling, digital uh, solutions will really help a lot and, and uh, move us forward. Then one last thing I wanted to talk to you about is what we call the long-term strategy. You know that under the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, everyone who has signed up to it has to submit a long-term strategy for 2020 on how they're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, this has to be submitted by 2020. The Commission adopted at the end of November last year, just before COP24 in Katowice, uh, something called a vision document identifying eight different pathways to get to net zero by 2050. In some cases, not net zero, sometimes it would be 80%. But these look at different technical scenarios of how to achieve this. Uh, and one element, no, two elements, I should say, are very important in this context. And to really reach net zero, we clearly have to have behavioral change amongst people. And by better using digital technologies, individuals will, you know, I don't know, there'll be new apps, new ideas, uh, less red meat, uh, uh, fewer airplane trips. If they're always on strike, we don't have to worry about that. Uh, better use of vehicles. You know, you can just imagine the hundreds of different things. So behavioral change is one that I want to emphasize. And of course, the circular economy is another important aspect. And you've mentioned uh, this too. So I think in these contexts as well, to make sure we have continued economic growth, new jobs, uh, and do not destroy the quality of life that we've had. We have to really make sure that new technologies, new innovative solutions are found to achieve these goals in the future. And for those reasons, the European Commission has proposed in its multi-annual financial framework for the next period, an increase in what we call climate mainstreaming to 25% of all EU funding has to be for climate mainstreaming, which includes green and clean energy, et cetera, et cetera. And also a very big increase in the research and innovation budget. And I think there, there's a huge potential. You mentioned already the importance of patenting in Europe. Europe is very dynamic and innovative. Uh, so the potential, I think, is there to really grow further. OK. And I seem to have had a, a longer and bigger name, so. Okay. But, uh, Thanks a lot. So uh, 
um, what I understood is that the panel is a bit um, strong on the electricity side, and that is with good reason, because electricity will be one of the main pillars of decarbonization. So um, uh, if you read the, uh, the climate strategy proposal that, uh, that Megan mentioned, uh, electrification is, is one of the large trends and uh, for decarbonizing electricity, and significantly higher shares of renewables will need to be integrated in the system. What I understand also is that you, beyond more volatile uh, uh, renewables, you will also get much more appliances being connected, not only through the electricity grid, but also through data. So we will have much more interfaces with millions of appliances, it's essentially uh, electricity consuming and producing appliances also being connected through uh, through data systems that need to speak to each other. So there will be a big issue and, and question around interfaces. Um, what who is essentially going to manage that system? Will there be a very de uh, decentralized way of managing uh, when, uh, how, to, uh, how to make sure that production and consumption always is, uh, uh, is synchronized? Or will there be a very strong centralized system with, with one big player that essentially manages this system? Um, that leads me essentially to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the next question that I would like to, uh, to put to the panel, that is, what do you think is the, um, is the regulatory framework that we would need to, uh, to put in place in order to manage um, this increasing um, role of digital technology in, um, uh, in the sectors we described? Okay, I'll, I'll try to highlight a few things that are important for, for us and then we can, we can comment on some points since you did you raise like the data, for example, data utilization, data gathering utilization. So uh, one thing for sure is the standardization of the technology. There is a myriad technologies that you, know, you could use to digitalize. I'll make one, just one example because again, trying to be very practical. Um, Italy is, uh, of course, an L, you know, it was, was, uh, it, it was historically the Italian incumbent in electricity. Italy has been deployed through NL, the uh, smart meter, digital meter, since 15 years ago. So it's one, now one of the uh, countries with the highest penetration of digital meters. As NL, we've tried to, uh, uh, let's say, deploy, sell and deploy that technology in other countries. We didn't make any, any, we didn't have any results because, you know, each country, each area, I wanted to have its own standards. So basically today there are not any two standards which are which are the same. So standardization is of course a big driver of this because otherwise you you you, you basically don't respect the very same principle by which this equipment, these sensors have to speak to each other. So this would be one, regulate for standardization. The second one would be to deploy these technologies because as of today, again, just think about the the say the, the, the smallest piece of digital equipment in the in the grids, which is the, the digital meter, which has been referred to, it's not widely widespread. I mean, there are many countries where there are no digital meters. Yes, now there is, there is let's say, in the clean energy package, a provision by which you know, uh, smart meters will have to be deployed, but it was not the case until you know, the, the clean energy package. So this is just the most fundamental piece of equipment that we need. And then there are many others. So the technologies need to be deployed widely on the system. Um, of course, there is also a need for uh, connectivity because all these equipments will require to be connected. So there is a need for you know, broadband connectivity. I mean, widespread across the system. So that's need also to be to be supported. And um, I would say one last aspect is to 
regulate what are called the let's say the networks so in electricity there will be uh, the, the 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 TSO the transmission operator and the DSO the distribution <coughs> system operators in order for them to be to, for them to be incentivized to deploy and and figure out also ways to make these technologies efficient on the grid because they are the let's say the gatekeepers in a way for this technology to be to be deployed and it's it's technology which is I would say mostly deployed at the network level because it works at the interface of the different parts of the system. So these would be the uh, the things. Can I comment on a couple of things also that you, that I've noticed? Uh, I think that might be interesting. So you mentioned in your in your report the of course the growing demand of uh, of let's say the, the the digital giants. So the the growing intensity of of energy of data centers. So it's interesting to know, and we see this you know directly in many in many countries where we operate. That, you know all those big big players, and I'm referring to the Googles, the Amazon. You know, they are now exclusively buying renewable energy. They want to have, you know, they realize that this is a big potential problem to them, and they are basically by 100% of renewable energy for any, all of their uh, new data centers, which have an incredibly high energy demand. So, uh, whereas it is in Mexico, or it is in the US, or it is in Chile, I mean, they are buying renewable energy. So, they are the biggest corporate. Uh, um, uh, acquires of renewable energy, which is an interesting thing to see. Despite certain policies, like the policies in the, in the U.S., which actually are putting a reverse shift on on decarbonization, they they continue to be one of the biggest buyers of uh, renewable energy. I just want to and producers, yes, to produce themselves, yes. Yeah. Um, Megan, um, does does the commission? Because we, we now kind of dived a bit into electricity, um, does the Commission have a vision on how that will all play together? This uh, this this complex system of of many more players, or will the Commission essentially take more uh, a weight and uh, and regulate ex post approach to try to to see how the uh, how the new ecosystem develops? Whether there will be one central uh, player that uh, that does the optimization, like uh, platforms like uh, like Google or or others or or the uh, or the DSOs. No, first, I, uh, as you know, I couldn't answer such a question. Even if I could, I would say no. Uh, no, no, no. The, uh, I, I, first of all, I'm in the energy field now, so I don't know what the Connect people are doing on the other side, but I'm, I'm sure that's something that they wouldn't be thinking about. But to, just to come back to the difference between electricity and gas, I mentioned also the importance of sensors, pipelines, uh, uh, robotics, uh, artificial intelligence. And in the gas sector, where methane emissions are very important and much worse greenhouse gas emissions than CO2, there we have huge potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's one thing. The other is that one of the things that we are thinking about for the next commission, which will come some point, depending on, again, what happens today, <laughs> um, is uh, a similar package to what was done over the last uh, couple of years for the electricity market reform in the gas sector. So that would include, and because I mentioned already the regulatory changes that have been introduced in the electricity sector for the market reform, similar digital changes and proposals in the regulatory framework for gas would be probably introduced. It doesn't mean that the Commission would adopt them, but this is one of the ideas that we have for pushing forward there. I would 
at that stage already open up the uh, the floor to uh, to questions from the from the audience. Um, so um, we start with Reinhard. So I want to follow up on, on an issue that you already raised here, which is the adoption of these digital technologies. So we've talked a lot about the potential, and yes, that's there. But we also see already in general that there is a, a at least a lack of, of speed in uh, with which these new digital technologies are actually being adopted. And I think in the energy sector that particularly also will hold here. So I was wondering... And of course, Enel is, a, is an exception to the rule here. As you mentioned, lots of your, your fellow companies in other uh, countries are way further behind here. So why do you think is there is there this lack of, of or is there a lack of, of, in, of incentives for investing in these digital technologies? And if you're describing this decentralization within the energy sector here, so who should actually be the ones pushing these investments here? Which part of the value chains? And since it's much more of a network, um, would that also create maybe potential externality problems in who will actually make these investments here and how should policy be addressing those um, deficiencies? Maybe that's also a question. Well, long and complex question, so I'll try to give you some, some elements. Uh, so first of all, this of course, this is, is I would say, my view, uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, the, the, I would say not necessarily true. Um, it, it is changing now, but as you say, there are still some players, or all, I would say quite a number of, of big players in the industry who are kind of resisting the, the transition uh, because they see some, some, let's say, dangers, some risks in, in the transition itself. And of course, if you resist the transition, you also resist the implementation of the things that are required by the transition. Uh, we at NL, and again, this is the NL position, we embrace this transition because, uh, yes, we think it's good for the planet and will decarbonize the economy, but mostly, and this is what we thought at the beginning of the journey, because it's, it's driven by market forces. So the, the switch to, for example, and again, I'm going back to renewables, which is one of the pillars of the transition. The, 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 the drive for renewables is because they are cheaper than any other energy source, which is why the Googles and the Facebooks and the are buying energy, energy, renewable energy. Also because it's green, but because it's cheaper. So there is no reason really in, in uh, resisting the transition, especially in, in, uh, in certain things like renewables, because it doesn't make sense, it will come. And the same goes for batteries. Storage will be widely used in, uh, in, uh, in the electric systems because the costs are going down. And the same will go for PV. The cost of PV has dramatically decreased and it will continue to decrease. And it will be so much cheaper to generate uh, energy with PV. Also in geographies you, know, you might never think of uh, that it will make sense to use only PV coupled with batteries. Uh, and the same uh, for for electric vehicles. So it's it's a market force basically. So this will uh, will uh, will arrive. So this is the the, the first point. Um, who should uh, drive this? Uh, basically, it's the um, the requirement for digitalization is pervasive in in the system. So this might go from the 
the, the power plants owned by generators like us to the, the transmission system, to the distribution system, to uh, consumers. So let's take you know, them one by one. Uh, I think one of the most important pieces are, of course, the TSOs, the transmission system, and the DSOs, because, as again, as I said, the values in the, interaction, in the interaction of all these pieces, and they own the network, which is, let's say, the physical and the logical piece of the system which makes uh, the uh, interaction possible. So they should be the ones driving. Of course, we are doing our part when it comes to the, um, the, the plants, because, of course, there is a potential for digital technology there. Just to give an example, if you have uh, uh, better sensors or better forecasting capabilities, you are able to know that that plant will not produce in 10 minutes and will produce again in one hour. So this is a very important piece of information for, for balancing the system. Uh, when it comes to the last piece of the, of the, the value chain, so the consumers, the, the, there is a big talk about digitalizing you know, our appliances and you, you might find you know, apps to see what your washing machine in, is consuming all the time. I think what is missing now is, is, uh, is we're thinking a lot about this in NL because we have also a division working on this. It's probably a killer application because all these things are nice, but you and me as a consumer, you don't really see the value, okay? What's the point in knowing that your uh, dishwasher is using two kilowatts you know, in this moment? It's really uh, negligible. So there is a value either when you know, there is something you cannot do without this technology or when there is real money attached. So if I'm gonna tell you that by using this technology, you're gonna save, I don't know, 50% of your electricity bill, that would be fantastic. Now, one more thing, of course, and I'll stop here. So uh, if you take many markets, you know, the, uh, the thing is that the potential that you have to save energy, so to attach money to this, is kind of negligible because the energy component of the bill is a small part, maybe 20, 30%, because the rest is, you know, uh, system costs or taxation. So this is another hurdle that you need to overtake. So in general, you, we, we need to find uh, applications that allow things which have value for, for the consumer and they cannot be done without this, this technology. I, I agree entirely with what you've said. Um, I, I think uh, another aspect which perhaps some people in the room don't know so well, especially if you're economists or digital people rather than energy people, the costs of renewables over the last 10 years have just come down dramatically, dramatically. It's really a fantastic change that's taken place. So that's one thing that's particularly interesting and important. And the potential impossibility to generate your own uh, renewables has also changed very dramatically. So that's one incentive. What is another that's very important? You mentioned it at the end as well, and that's taxes. We see that the way in which member states tax uh, and use their fiscal policies in the energy sector is quite, let's call it, interesting. Uh, so energy, if energy intensive industries have usually had a benefit in terms of the cost that they pay for energy. Why? It was considered because they're energy intensive, they will no longer be competitive if they have to pay the full high market rate plus tax, so they get a tax benefit usually. And, and again, each country is, is a little bit different. So these are extremely important aspects, and the Commission is now looking at a proposal to be adopted in early um, April on introducing qualified majority voting in environmental taxation, which is really energy taxation. Why? The way in which tax policy is applied has huge potential to push forward these 
green and clean energy and uh, climate friendly uh, provisions. However, those of you also who are lawyers will know that taxation requires unanimity. As an example, we have something called the Energy Taxation Directive, established in 2011. In 2003, in 2011, the Commission tried to change it. It took two years in the Council, and finally the Commission gave up and said, we can't do it because it requires unanimity, we're not making progress. So from 2003 to now, you can imagine the energy sector has changed quite significantly. So just to put a little bit of context here, what are the implications for costs, taxes, uh, prices, etc. And in that uh, respect, I would refer you to one of the reports of one of my units, which is the Energy Prices and Costs report that is usually comes out every two years, and it was published and adopted by the Commission in early January this year. So I think that's a useful thing, especially for those of you who like numbers, to have a look at and see what the impact is. And then one other aspect too, and it relates also to taxation, etc., is the continued subsidization of inefficient fossil fuels that we still see in member states despite OECD resolutions, encouragements, you know, the whole story. But So that's another aspect that I think is very important in this context. Thank you. My name is Carsten Hess. I'm with Santander Bank. Um, I know I don't fit into the energy sector here, but I was just curious, as we are discussing right now with DG FISMA, kind of financial service and sustainability um, areas of activities coming up. So I wonder whether you coordinate that, because I see a lot of opportunities, of course, for financial service to help uh, to, to drive these uh, goals, uh, not just for the energy sector, but also helping SMEs who come up with good technology solutions. So I was just wondering whether there's a kind of discussion, because we heard a lot about silo approaches before in, in, in the meetings, and it would be very, I think, recommendable to, to have this broader debate, uh, how digitalization, financial service industry, and your sectors or your areas of expertise work together. Thank you. The simple answer is yes. We work very closely with them and we're continuing on sustainable finance, uh, taxonomy, all these things, yeah. That, that's from the Commission side, I don't know what <laughs> I would have uh, second, uh, another try with, uh, with Valentino on the, uh, on the question about kind of what is, before we had a model in, in which we uh, had the, the companies, as you described, and at the very beginning vertically integrated, now we have different companies that, uh, that exchange data with each other, and now with digitalization, an additional layer of complexity comes into that. And do you think you know already how the, uh, uh, how the business structure is going to look like? Or do you think that is something that, uh, that will only be uh, uh, where very different futures are, are feasible, and should, in your view, policy try to take a stance on that, or should it just be left to the market? Okay, again, very, very broad and difficult question with interest, so I'll try to give you uh, some, some perspective. So, uh, we think that we don't know how the world is going to be on, on, you know, on this aspect, because, you know, changes is so rapid that uh, this seems trivial but now I'll try to put this in perspective seems uh, you know so rapid that it, it's basically impossible to foresee what's going to happen in, in five years so just to give you and again we're coming from the energy sector so maybe a new sector through some of you the logics of the sector so many years ago we used to plan 
10 years ahead. It doesn't make any sense today. So we're no longer doing any, any 10 years plan. We're doing three years plan. So because, you know, things are changed so much. Or renewables, 10 years ago, the cost has decreased so much that even the most optimistic scenario, you know, divided by half, you know, didn't capture the, the cost reduction potential technology. So, you know, sitting here and telling you what the system is going to be like, you know, when it comes to all the, these digital aspects is, I think it's, it's uh, you know, very risky. So instead what we're doing, we're experimenting with different things so that we at least understand where the the wind is, is, is blowing and we can be positioned accordingly and you know in a way uh, we experiment with different technologies different systems so that we can uh, different business models specifically so we can be ready when in one of them one one of those or two of those emerge to be you know knowledgeable about them and, and use them so this would be my first uh, my first answer um, because this is true in all the things that they were doing. So also in renewables, for example, there are many, many new technologies we're, we're experimenting with because we don't know what's going to happen in, in five years. So this will be, at least, I think, uh, the, sensible, uh, the sensible approach. In general, when it comes to what is the, the model that we would like to, to see, it's a model which is the, the most distributed one. I don't see, I mean, we, we, we don't see large uh, centralized players, you know, uh, becoming infrastructure players, uh, uh, gathering all the data, exchanging all the data. Quite on the contrary, technologies like blockchain allow, you know, this, this structure to be quite distributed, like energies are distributed, data is going to be distributed, you know, with no central, this is our view, with no central uh, um, authority to validate them. So but technology is there and the potential could be, could be, could be uh, reaped if it is, it is going to be distributed. Of course, it could be, could be quite different, but this is what we think could be most appropriate for the uh, for, for the energy for the energy system, in general, as player of the industry, we see a risk, which is what, in a way, has happened to the to the telecom industry uh, in this sector. So, uh, huge investments have been made by telecom operators to build uh, broadband networks, and now the value is going to the providers of services who travel on those networks. So, WhatsApp or Facebook or, or Google. So, who made the investment? is not getting the return they were expecting, and the return are going to somebody else who was more fast, smart, to basically provide a platform to um, sitting on those investments and getting the benefits. So this is the risk for us, because we are deploying huge amounts of capital, huge amounts of capital. And of course, we want to see the return of that. So for us, <coughs> the risk, and of course, what we're working to avoid is to be, in a way, used as a platform by somebody else that will, will reap the benefit. So I think, and I think, of course, this is a problem for us, but it's a problem for the system because if players like us deploying huge amount of capital are scared that they will not see the return, capital will not be deployed, and therefore the system will not transition to, uh, to the new modality. That's fascinating. Um, My name is Elena Vaccarino from Frontier Economics. I just wanted to know whether you had a view on, because I think Renita mentioned that the, the level of adoption of these very new digitalized technologies is quite low. And so I was quite curious to ask you whether you had any views on any particular leverages that could be used at the regulatory level or in terms of like strategies to in, in, increase the level of customer engagement that compare, for example, to the telecom sectors appear to be lower 
in the energy. So I was quite curious about that. So your question you know, uh, on the, let's say, on the user side, as I understand. Yes, I mean, like, it would be interesting to see the view, like, from the policy perspective, but also in terms of, like, for example, those, like, energy providers, uh -huh. how they plan to face this problem of a low customer engagement, given... Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, Let me start on the regulatory side. As I said, the new electricity directive and new electricity regulation provide new... Uh, how can I call it, benefits or advantages for consumers and require these new smart metering provisions, ability to use demand response, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a whole series of new provisions in the regulation. Those of you who are lawyers will also know that even though European regulation and legislation is wonderful, it takes some time. So one is a directive. What does that mean? First of all, it's not in force. It hasn't yet been uh, published in the official journal, but it will be in the next weeks. How many weeks? I don't know, but in the next weeks. And uh, then, of course, the member states have to transpose that into their national law. So it will take a bit of time. It's not going to be tomorrow, but people know that. I mean, we've been working for two years on this. So uh, member states know this. Uh, the electricity sector knows it. Everyone knows about it. The regulation, of course, will come into effect and is applicable directly. Uh, so those provisions will come into effect and, and will exist. Yes, on the so on the let's say more business side of, of the story, specifically about consumers, I think that you know what has been said also by Megan is that a huge um, habit change is required. Okay, so we all need to think that you know our, uh, our daily activities, our uh, life patterns have an impact on 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 the environment, and therefore we need to uh, redesign certain aspects of our uh, way of living not necessarily with bad impacts, in order for, for you know, in order to support the, the transition. So with this very general, uh, uh, let's say, concept, I would say that the, uh, the unfortunate thing is that, uh, and I keep in the parallel with the telecom industry, the, if you think about electricity, let, let's be honest, it's not a fancy thing, okay? If you think about your, your energy bill and your electricity bill, it's not a fancy, fancy thing. You think about it when, you don't have, when there is a blackout when it doesn't work. You know, it's not something you want to engage with. It's not a high-touch you know, type of thing. So it's a low-touch type of thing. So basically, if it works okay, they're doing what they, they need to do. If it doesn't work, ah, screw them. You know, it's not working. So it's not, there is no high-touch engaging this, and therefore, you know, uh, it's not touching the earth, or the, uh, the, 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 it's not engaging with the consumers. But we said the consumers, as all, need to change their habits. So this is the difficult thing. So we'll need to find ways to, in a way, engage consumers, okay? Uh, and sorry, another thing, it's quite a technical thing because we will need to explain to people that yes, if you connect this and you put a panel, a PV panel on your rooftop and you have you know, a battery in your house and you have an electric vehicle, you could trade energy with your neighbor, you could trade energy with the grid, it's a complex thing, okay? So we'll need to take this complex thing, which is not emotional at all, and in a way, Presented, packaged commercially, so to speak, that you know it appeals to you. So I have to tell you, if you put this and that, and you get the service from this company, okay, you will get 20% saving on your bills, and you will save the planet. So these things do not exist today, commercially. They, no, they, they, will, they will arrive. They're arriving. But just another element relating to that, and that uh, relates to smart metering. And here, I, I agree entirely with what you say. I think that when consumers can see 
what the real impact is of their consumption, uh, where they're spending, what their neighbor is doing. I mean, obviously they're not supposed to know what their neighbor is doing, but um, these elements are very important to behavioral change. And so if there are little apps that go along with your new smart meter that allows you to see, and I, I, I know people who have this, uh, they can see exactly what's going on. Those are the kinds of things that change behavior, I think. Oh, okay, good. Scott Marcus Pringle. Well, I actually had a question about uh, the broadband costs that you were talking about a moment ago. You were talking about the high cost to the network operators, and you were talking third person about network operators. But you yourself are basically a network operator through the uh, joint venture with Casa de Prestiti through Open Fiber, correct? So uh, I guess my, my question would be, are you seeing any synergies from that? I would have thought, on the one hand, first off, the smart meters need to somehow get the data back. I would have thought that they could be, that there would be synergies. Also, in terms of access to, I, I don't know how much you're actually allowed to have synergies. That's one of my questions, in fact. Oh, okay. I was afraid of that. All right, but but that's okay. It's still something I'd like to understand. So, I mean, I would have also thought that, in terms, for example, of access to rights of ways, you've got lots of rights of ways to lots of buildings, uh, and you also have lots of experience with civil works. And when you're, since you're looking to become uh, through open fiber uh, to become uh, one of the largest fiber to the premise providers in Italy over the next few years. It's a large build out that you're looking at. I would have thought that your experience with doing civil works and that your access to ducts, plus the fact that you have your own requirements for access to every house, I would have thought that there should be synergies. So uh, first of all, let's say there are there are unbounded rules in, in in the network business. Okay, so this is the, the, the general premise we need to, to remember. Specifically, when it comes to open fiber, the entire let's say industrial deal of open fiber is that uh, since we own the um, Enel owns a vast part of distribution network in in Italy. So distribution network being basically the network, the wire networks, which takes electricity to the single houses, okay? So this is, is in large part owned by NL in, in Italy. There are other owners of this, uh, of this network in, uh, in other cities, in certain cities in Italy. So it will make sense to use, to basically to piggyback on that, on that network to also, bring broadband, to also bring broadband to the houses, so fiber to the, to fiber to the house. And yes, in fact, since we are uh, quite a large, a large network, which is very uh, widely distributed and experiencing civil works, etc., it makes sense and there are, there are synergies between these two things. We are going to be a pure network operator, so we just provide the network the access, nothing, nothing more, to whoever wants it. Okay, so uh, we'll not provide any services, and we'll of course need to be. We are forced to give equal access to uh, all the uh, different businesses who wants to access the network. So this is the the, the generic idea. But yes, it's like you said, there are synergies, industrial synergies in in uh, uh, using the electricity network to uh, lay down a broadband network. Uh, to my knowledge, there are very few cases where this has been done, because typically there are a couple around the world, I don't remember where, but typically broadband network have been laid down either uh, based on the, on the network of KTV, cable TVs or independent in many, many states. But what we're doing is we are trying to use the same model in countries where we own the distribution networks, which don't have yet a broadband network. So you may think about certain countries in Latin America, for example. So this will be the idea. Did I reply to your question? Uh, you replied to my question. Okay. Thank you. If there is uh, no strong objection or any final words from, uh, from you on that, I think um, 
uh, I would close here and, and give then uh, room for uh, having 10 more minutes for coffee. And I would argue that this interaction between sustainability and digitalization is a, uh, is a relatively unexplored space. It's still a, a quite fascinating one. I think there are more questions than, than answers, at least on my side. I think the, uh, what Scott mentioned, this uh, issue on, uh, on regulation synergies between, uh, or regulating synergies between different fields is, uh, is for example, a very fascinating one. Um, what we see is that digitalization is not only um, kind of will change the, the goods and services that we, uh, that we consume, but it will also change entire industries. 100-year-old industries will be, uh, will be profoundly changed and, and probably very quickly. And um, this holds massive promises uh, for, uh, for all of us, but we, uh, but we need to understand it much better than, uh, than we do right now. Uh, what, a last note, um, what I found interesting, because you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the climate vision of the, of the Commission, is in this document uh, you had one only mention of carbon prices or the emission trading system, and digitalization was mentioned 18 times. So people think that there is huge promise in, uh, uh, in digitalization for, for decarbonization, and I think it will need a lot more brain to, to really understand what needs to be done to, uh, to get there. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks a lot for staying so long.